Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. My name is Kyle Cox, and I'm excited to be here. Uh, a little bit about me. I grew up in Brenham, Texas, right down the road. We're known for creating Bluebell and Listeria. Um, and I went to A&M, graduated in 2013. Um, nice. Good. Good. See me after the service. We should all hang out after. Um, after that, I came on staff as a fellow for three years, and uh, in my fourth year, I came on staff full-time in our outreach department. I got married, uh, so that is Chamilla Panilla, uh, or was Chamilla Panilla, now it's Chamilla Cox, which, you know, is a super, super unfortunate name change for her. Um, however, that's her name, Chamilla Cox. I love her. She's amazing. Um, and Chamilla and I, as of last summer, we've moved overseas to Greece and have spent the last year in Greece, and we're here this summer just re, uh, renewing our visa, seeing friends and family, and we will head back overseas in a little less than a month now. Um, so on our year anniversary, we decided London was close to Greece, so we went to London. And uh, I don't know if you've been to London, but it is incredible. I love it. It's beautiful. It's got a lot of cool history, a lot of fun things to do, plays. Definitely worth going. One thing that London also is known for is its art. And I just don't get art. Like, you could put a canvas in front of me and be like, it's abstract. And I would be like, I don't, I don't know what that means. Uh, I just don't get it. I don't understand how people put splotches on a canvas and sell it for thousands of dollars. This isn't a knock on artists. It's a knock on me because I, I, just, don't, I just don't get it. And I remember Chamilla and I, we were visiting a friend one day in London. And uh, the friend invited us to a modern art museum. And I don't know a lot about modern art other than that it's art and it's modern um, but upon going there, I have a couple pictures that we took that I want to share with you. Um, so this is what I would call a stick. And uh, it's not like it's an ancient Mayan stick, right? Like this is a stick that was painted within the last couple of years. And it was selling for like $1,000, which is crazy to me. But, you know, modern art, stick, painted. There you go, $1,000. Uh, this is what I would refer to as bricks. Um, <laughs> However, the bricks, there's some perspective story, abstract story there that I just don't get. I just see bricks. Again, knock on me, not artist. Uh, this, uh, this is just a dark room with a projector showing just a white square. Um, so modern art, there you go. This next one's my favorite, I think. Can we turn the volume up? There, there we go. Let that modern art really resonate with your soul changed yet? I know I do. My wife and my friend and I, we, uh, we heard this, I don't know, Gregorian chant, monkish chant, I don't know what it is. Uh, but we heard this and we saw it in a big dome and we thought, let's go check it out. So we go in this dome and it's just, it's just a dark room with stock market symbols from the market crash in 2008. So there you go, modern art. This is a urinal. Um, as you can see, the urinal is in a glass cage, and we're looking at this urinal for like 10 minutes, just examining this urinal, and there was a point when I just had to ask, like I just had to ask, like, do they believe this? Like, are they really selling this urinal as art, you know, to be used? And not for its proper use, but for art. You know, like, are they really able to sell this urinal? So I had to ask someone, like, do you, do you really believe this? And the person, they, asked, they, they answered me saying, you know, we provide art that is new and different than historical art. 
Because it's new and different than historical art, it gains the attention of others. Others want to see it because it's something new and different. And I had this look of disbelief on my face, and I think he could tell. So he simply responded to my look with, Look, man, you're the one who paid $30 to come look at a urinal for 10 minutes. (laughs) And he's right. You know, like the reality is I'm the chump who spent money to look at a urinal for 10 minutes. You know, I'm the one who spent money to look at a stick. Because it was new and different. Like, I didn't know what modern art was. I just knew it was different than historical art. So I was like, yeah, that sounds fun. And went for it. And I realized, let's not look at that urinal for the rest of this. <laughs> I realized he, what he told me was a profound truth. When we provide something different than the world expects, we get the world's attention. Whether good or bad. I mean, we see it in pop culture. You know, we see it in movies. Movies, they're kind of generally the same. But then in 2008, a movie changed the game. Iron Man comes out, and then they make 20 movies focusing on this plot that led up to an event that happened two months ago, an Infinity War. And everyone sells out these theaters because it's new, and it's different, and it gets people's attention. The reality is this truth applies to Christians. The reality is as Christians, when we live differently than how the world expects, we also garner the world's attention. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to apply this truth to the reality of pain. I have a quote that I want to just read off to you. And it's, when we respond to pain or suffering differently than how the world expects, we garner the world's attention. We get the world's attention. The reality is pain is a constant in every one of our lives. Pain happens no matter who you are. Whether you live in a different nation, those in a different nation, those of different races, those of different tribes and tongues, whether you're a Republican or Democrat or liberal or conservative, libertarian, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, atheist, and Christian, we all experience pain. Every one of us will walk through pain and tragedy and suffering at one point in our life. And C.S. Lewis, he has a really great quote in his book, Aggrieved Observed. He writes, we are promised suffering. They were part of the program. We were even told, blessed are they that mourn. And I accept it. I've got nothing that I hadn't bargained for. Of course, it is different when the pain happens to oneself and not to others. And when it happens in reality, not imagination. And the reason I think a lot of us can identify with that quote is because it's, it's easy to talk about pain. You know, it's easy for us to sit in a room and discuss pain. It's even easy for me to be on stage and talk about pain. But the reality is, is when pain comes crashing through your door, when your world just seems to break beneath you, there's little you realize you could have done to prepare for it. Like, we can talk about it all day long, but the reality is, when pain actually strikes, there's little that we realize we could have done to prepare for it. The sting is still strong. And so this morning, what I want to do is, in light of this reality, that pain will happen in our life, some of you in the room who are currently walking through pain, what I want to do is look biblically how we can redirect our pain towards purpose, how we as Christians can respond to pain in such a way that the world would see the hope of Jesus Christ. And as I Look throughout scripture, I think Ezekiel is someone who can really relate to us in our pain. Ezekiel is someone I believe is very familiar with pain. Now, the book of Ezekiel, if I could just like describe it in one word, it would be strange. It's a very strange and odd book. But when we look at Ezekiel and when we 
look at it as a whole and the history, the historical context surrounding the book, what we see is not a book merely of just odd prophetic illustration, but what we see is a book, one filled with hope that relates to us on a personal level. And so I want to try to do justice in our understanding of this book. And to do so, we really do need to look at the historical context surrounding it. So several hundred years before Ezekiel comes into the picture, the reign of King Solomon comes to end, and the nation of Israel is split in two. So you have the northern kingdom of Israel, which is in blue, and then you have the southern kingdom of Judah, which is in orange. Our focus this morning is on the southern kingdom, southern kingdom of Judah, particularly if you can see the star in the north, Jerusalem. We are looking at Jerusalem and the temple of God. And what happens is there's three main prophets speaking around this time, around this soon-to-be exile of Judah. You have Jeremiah, who begins his ministry about 30 years before Ezekiel. And Jeremiah, he's preaching to the Judeans who had been rebelling against God, worshiping false idols. They had been looking, to hope to, uh, looking for hope towards Egypt instead of the Lord and profaning the temple of God. And so Jeremiah, what he tells Judah is, if you don't repent, if you don't turn away from your idols, what's going to happen is the Babylonian army is going to come from the west, they're going to ransack Judah, and they're going to take with them 10,000 exiles to the north, or to the, back to the west. Back to the east, I'm sorry, excuse me, a lot of, a lot of directions there. Um, and so what happens is the inevitable, uh, Judah does not repent, and so Babylon from the east comes over, they in 586 BC, they attack Judah, and Judah, and Judah, along with 10,000 exiles, is taken back to Babylon. One of these exiles is the major prophet Daniel. And if you're familiar with Daniel, he, uh, in Babylon, he garners the respect of King Nebuchadnezzar. And during this time, Daniel, if you're familiar with the story, he gets thrown in the lion's den, walks out with 10 pet new cats. And uh, he really rises in the esteem and the, uh, the respect for Nebuchadnezzar. And it's five years into Daniel's ministry that Ezekiel comes into the picture, that Ezekiel comes into Babylon. Now, what's really noteworthy about Ezekiel, it was around the age 25 when Ezekiel was living in Jerusalem that God calls him into Babylon. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 1. And God said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And God said to me, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to nations of rebels who have rebelled against me. Now, what's significant here is Ezekiel wasn't one of the exiles. He wasn't captured. No, what Ezekiel does here is he willingly uproots his family from Jerusalem and he willingly travels to Babylon to live in captivity with those in exile. And he settles into a city called Tel Abib. And Tel Abib commentators call it the most dangerous and painful city to live in. The actual translation means Mount of Deluge and it's near the Shabar River. So it's notorious for flooding and notorious, uh, notorious for death. And for five years, Ezekiel ministers to these exiles as a priest. And it's not until Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 17, that he is called to be a prophet. Ezekiel writes, Son of man, I have appointed you as a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. So it is here that Ezekiel begins his prophetic ministry. I want to say the focal point of this book is on the destruction of the temple of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
You see, at this point in our story, all those in exile, all their hope was into the temple of God. While the temple of God stood strong, they believed they had hope. So this book really is surrounded in three parts, surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Chapters 1 through 24, this is all of judgment, Ezekiel's judgment uh, towards these exiles, towards the temple of God in Jerusalem. This leads up to the climactal point in chapter 24 when this destruction occurs. And we're actually going to focus in 24, so if you want to turn there, we'll be there very soon. And then in chapters 25 through 32, we won't look at this this morning, but uh, Ezekiel redirects his judgment towards Babylon and Assyria. And then in chapters 30 through, 33 through 48, what we see is this is after the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of Israel. And what we see here is the restoration of Jerusalem and hope. And so for our purposes, we're focusing at the first 24 chapters. Now, the assumption was, when these Judeans were captured, when they were sent into exile in Babylon, that they would repent, that they would turn from their idols. But this isn't what they do. In fact, when they get into Babylon, they did not take this exile seriously enough. They assume and were convinced that their time in Babylon was going to be very temporary, very short. And they assume this because the temple of God still stood strong. And as the temple of God stands strong, they believe their hope stands strong. As long as the temple stands, as long as Jerusalem stands, they have hope. And so Ezekiel, he was, excuse me, Ezekiel, he was called to a very specific ministry. It was to convince those in captivity that their time was not temporary, that they were not secure, and that eventually, that within the next couple of years, all the hope that they have on the temple in Jerusalem would be crushed. And so along with Ezekiel's message, he's given a methodology. Ezekiel, how he prophesies, he uses illustrations. And if you've ever been to church like once or ever, then you know what an illustration is. It's simply a story or picture to uh, be used for the purpose of making a point. And Ezekiel's illustrations, they're pretty crazy. And so I just wanted you to imagine Brian doing these illustrations because they're pretty outlandish. So Ezekiel, starting in chapter 4, he, uh, he takes the stone, he draws Jerusalem on the stone, then he sets up catapults around the stone, he sets up a, builds a wall around the stone, and then immediately as he's done building a defense mechanism for this stone, he, like a madman, just goes crazy and starts destroying all these catapults, destroying the tents, destroying the wall, and eventually destroying the stone. And what this did was illustrate the, uh, This illustrated the impending judgment that would fall upon the temple of God. Another time, Ezekiel, he lays on his right side, he lays on his side for 430 days, on his right side for 30, 390 days, and on his left for 40. And this was to illustrate the longevity of Judah's captivity. Another time, Ezekiel was to cook meat over human dung, as the NSAB so poetically puts it. And after this, he graciously asked God if it could be cow dung and not human dung, to which God graciously responds yes. And this was to illustrate the unclean food that these, uh, those in exiles would have to eat during their exile. Lastly, near the end, before chapter 24, Ezekiel, he shaves his beard and a third of it he throws in the air and kind of starts cutting it. A third of it he sets on fire and a third of it he puts in his pocket. And this was to illustrate the third of Judah that would be slaughtered by the attack in Jerusalem. 
the third that would burn in Babylon, and the third who would make it out alive. All these prophetic illustrations to demonstrate the destruction that would fall upon Jerusalem. All these Judean exiles had to do was heed Ezekiel's warning, turn from their idols, and turn and, uh, turn and redirect their allegiance back towards God. That's all they had to do. And yet, just like they denied the words of Jeremiah, they denied the words of Ezekiel. They looked at Ezekiel as if he was crazy. And so what happens is we get to the pinnacle of Ezekiel chapter... uh, We get to the pinnacle of Ezekiel's message found in Ezekiel chapter 24. So it is here that all this judgment in the last 23 chapters, this is where it's leading to. So starting in verse 15, Ezekiel writes, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, behold... I am about to take from you the desire of your eyes with a blow. But you will not mourn and you will not weep and your tears shall not come. Groan silently. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. And do not cover your mustache and do not eat the bread of men. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And in the evening my wife died. And in the morning I did as I was commanded. The people said to me, will you not tell us what these things that you are doing mean for us? And we'll pause there for right now. I think it's interesting that Ezekiel, this prophet of justice, as some commentators call him, this man who performed strange prophetic illustration, that this man was lovingly married. Scripture calls his wife the delight of his eyes. And think about this. Up until this point in the story, Ezekiel's life has already been marked by pain and suffering. Ezekiel had to leave the comfort of his home in Jerusalem to walk to the east and settle in in the nation that destroyed his home. He ministered to his own people, yet what he was disregarded and rejected. He sacrificed his time, even his body, for painful prophetic illustration. He was a man without home. He was a man without friends. He was a man without comfort and security. And yet, despite all of this, despite all the pain that he has walked through, it is safe to assume that this is by far the most painful event in Ezekiel's life. It is the tragic death of Ezekiel's wife. The tragic death of his beloved. And yet, despite the death of his wife, God, he commands, each command that God gives Ezekiel is contrary to what the mourner would do in the ancient world. Those who mourned, they would tear their clothes, and yet God here instructs Ezekiel to bind his turban. Those who mourned, they would walk barefoot, and yet God tells him to keep his shoes on. Those who mourned would shave their face, and yet God tells him to leave his face uncovered. Those who mourned the day of the ceremony Ceremony honoring the loved one. They were, to deny, they were to take on food given by those in the community for the next week. And yet God, what he commands Ezekiel to do, is to deny any bread or food from man. So the Lord instructs Ezekiel to deny any sign of mourning. He tells Ezekiel he can groan and mourn silently. But in terms of what the rest of the world sees, he is to respond contradictory to the norm. 
And so what happens is Ezekiel's unnatural response to death, it immediately garners the attention of those in exile. His unorthodox conduct in light of his grief, it inevitably drew questions. And Ezekiel, what he reminds me is that when we respond to tragedy and pain and suffering, contrary to what the world expects, we get the world's attention. Here, I am struck by Ezekiel's obedience. That Ezekiel, despite the tragic death of his wife, despite all that he's been through, the goodness and glory of God never left Ezekiel's eyes. How could that be? Well, I believe it's because Ezekiel recognized that not only God was good, but Ezekiel had hope in a future reality where there is no pain, where there is no suffering, where there is no tragedy. You see, the love and goodness and hope that we have in God compels us to obedience even when we don't understand. You see, uh, our response to pain that is contrary to to the way the world expects, we can do this because of the hope that we have in Jesus. The hope that we have made possible through faith in his life, death, and resurrection. You see, suffering enables us to help other sufferers. And this is only made possible for us who believe in Jesus because we have hope. We have hope in a future with no death, with no pain, with no tragedy. We have hope made possible through Jesus. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to illustrate this point through a friend of mine who works on staff here at Grace Bible Church. Her name is Sarah Davidson. And Sarah, she has had health issues uh, come up in her life starting at a young age. And so I just asked her to write out some of the stuff that she has been through in life. And so I just want to read out what she has said. She writes, health issues began, began at the Christmas of age of 14. I felt like it was growing pains at first, but then I got something like the flu. But additionally, my knees and hands and joints turned bright blue. I began coughing up blood, so I was taken to several hospitals without cause and without reason. During this time, I had to go to the hospital every month throughout high school, uh, seeing a neurologist and a rheumatologist. My ultimate diagnosis is fibromyalgia. I was alone most of high school because I had to guard my immune system. Because if I was around people, I would grow very sick. I currently live in daily pain, severe joint and muscular pain, insomnia and headaches. I have constant migraines and fatigue, continuous and mysterious infections such as scarlet fever, cat scratch fever, multi-drug resistant bacterial infections that nearly took my life on several occasions. I consistently live with severe constant sinus infections and bladder infections, all without cause. I've been diagnosed with Lyme's disease and lupus disease. Even currently in the last several months, Sarah, she had several uh, cysts and she had several uh, tumors inside her body. And so because of this, doctors that she saw told her that there was a strong possibility of ovarian cancer. In light of all the pain that Sarah's been through, in light of surgery after surgery, I have a picture of her that I want to show that was taken right before her most recent surgery. And it wasn't staged. She didn't know a picture was being taken. But her husband took a picture of this shot of Sarah right before she had surgery. And I want to point out a couple things. There is no false sense of optimism here. 
Like Sarah, she's clearly exhausted. She's clearly tired. And yet what you see on her face is joy. What you see on her face is joy made possible because of the hope that she has in Jesus. And I see this even after her surgery, as she was regaining her strength to walk again. Sarah, in this picture, though exhausted, she has a smile on her face because of the joy that she has. You see, her life, though it has been marked by pain, despite surgery after surgery, she can proclaim that she has hope in Jesus. That she has joy made possible because of Jesus. And so those of us in the room who know her, we know that she is an inspiration to us, but she is also a witness to others. That she has also been able to walk with other people in her life, disciple other women in her life who have also gone through loss, who have also walked through pain. And she has seen other people come to know Jesus or even deepen their relationship with Jesus because of her story. You see, God, he uses our pain He uses our tragedy and he uses our suffering to expose the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Our suffering exposes hope. And so moving on, Ezekiel, he answers the question that the exiles ask him. He writes, starting in verse 20, Then I said to them, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Speak to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. Behold, I am about to profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power, the desire of your eyes, and the delight of your soul. Your sons and your daughters whom you have left behind will fall by the sword. Yet you will do as I have done. You will not cover your mustache and you will not eat the bread of men. Your turbans will be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. And you will not mourn and you will not weep, but you will rot away in your iniquities and you will groan to one another. Thus Ezekiel will be a sign to you according to all that he has done you will do. And when it comes, then you will know that I am the Lord God. I mean, that's, that's, that's pretty heavy. I mean, that's some pretty heavy stuff written right there. Ezekiel, he answers that the temple of God, Jerusalem, the hope that you have placed are the, the item and the resource of your hope. It'll be stripped away. Your sons and your family, they will be slaughtered in the fight and in the battle. The temple will fail. Jerusalem will fail. And all hope that you've had in this temple in Jerusalem will fade away. And so there's no doubt that this catastrophe of the temple, this catastrophe of Jerusalem would send these exiles into shock and panic. And yet these exiles are told to respond contrary to how the world would expect. Now, I was reading this and I thought to myself, like, that's pretty bleak. Like, if I finished that sermon there and they would be in shock and panic and was like, okay, you have a great morning. We'll see you all next week. Like, that would be a pretty depressing way to end. And when I first read this, this is what I thought to myself. Like, where's the hope? Where do we see the hope? And as I read it again and again, it jumped out of me and I thought, how did I miss it? It's found in verse 24 and 27, when Ezekiel writes through the mouthpiece of God, and then they will know that I am the Lord God. When I first read that, I thought that was malicious. But that's not what God's doing. What's happening here is God is removing all of the finite sources of their hope. He's removing all the things that they've placed their hope in that would fail so that they would finally turn back to him. That they would finally turn back to him, the only one who could sustain their hope. 
You see, did they sin? Yes. Are they going to be judged? Yes. But God has not forgotten his people. Though this was an act of judgment, it was also an act of love. Because a loving God, what he does for them is he removes all the finite resources that they have to place their hope in so that they would turn around and they would redirect their hope back to him. He is the only one that sustains their hope. And so this is what he does. This act of judgment is also an act of love. That they would finally redirect their hope back to their God back to the God who had rescued them from Egypt. You see, this is a pivot point in the book of Ezekiel structurally. Because at this point, Ezekiel, he lays off of Judah. He lays off of the exiles and he reverts his judgment on Assyria and Babylon. And then finally, in the last third of the book, chapters 33 through 48, what we see is the great message of hope and restoration. You see, what Ezekiel prophesies is the future restored nation. The restoration of the temple back to its original intent. But this new nation could not begin to take form until the old had gone. And so what we see is in the future, and as we keep reading the Old Testament, we see restoration. We see hope. And we see this particularly in Ezekiel chapter 36, starting in verse 25. Ezekiel writes to the mouthpiece of God. He says, Then I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances." This is what we call the new covenant. And what we find in this new covenant is that we are no longer living under the law, but under the grace, under grace. This grace was made possible when sin separated us. And yet God, he sent his son Jesus to earth and Jesus, he would live a perfect life and he would die on a cross, taking the penalty of our sin. Three days later, he would rise from the grave and effectively conquer sin once and for all. That if we would have faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we would have hope and we would have relationship with the Father. This is what it means to live under grace, that we are no longer under the law, but grace. And so when he says, you will be careful to observe my ordinances, that's not because we follow the law. But that's because we have been given the indwelling spirit and we are made righteous through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the hope that we have as Christians placed in Jesus. And finally, as we move forward, Ezekiel through the mouthpiece of God writes in chapter 37 verse 27, My dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. God has not forgotten his people. And the reality is God has not forgotten you. God has not forgotten you and your pain and your suffering and your tragedy. He has not forgotten you. And so what do we as Christians do when we experience pain? Well, I believe there are a lot of resources out there that can help us and guide us. I believe counseling is out there that can help us and guide us, that people are out there that we can talk to. But first of all, I say, let's look at Jesus. 
Jesus was beaten. He was whipped. He was spit on. He was cursed at. He wore a crown of thorns. Then he was nailed to a cross. And Jesus, though they said, if you're God, come off that cross, he responded differently than how the world expected him to. And because of his great sacrifice and resurrection, this enabled a way for us to have salvation. This is Jesus. Jesus relates to us in our pain. Jesus experienced pain and he relates to you. Jesus experienced loss and he relates to you. Our hope is found in Jesus. This is how Elizabeth Elliot, when her husband Jim Elliot went to Ecuador to minister to a tribe and was killed moments on landing. This is how Elizabeth Elliot could move overseas to that same tribe and minister to that people. This is how Ashley Pate, who works here at Grace Bible Church, this is how she can meet with other women in her life who have experienced loss after the death of her mother. This is how, despite the loss of her mother, she can confidently say that God is good. And this is how she has walked with other girls who have experienced loss and have seen them come to know Jesus. This is how Nabil Qureshi, when he was told that he had a year and a half to live, that he can confidently say that God is good. And even more so than that, how his wife, after his death, can still say that, can still say God is good. This is how Horatio Spafford, after his family on a boat was After a boat sank on the way to Europe and he lost his family, how he could write the famous hymn, It is well with my soul, when peace like a river attends my way. They can all do this not because of a false sense of optimism, but because they have hope. They have hope in Jesus. They have hope made possible through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is how we can respond differently to tragedy, because we have hope. Matt Morton, our teaching pastor at Creekside, he writes in an article he wrote several years ago, we can panic or we can trust, we can pretend we are in control or grab a hold of the hand of of the God who is. The one who conquered death will not abandon his people. The one who defeated hell itself will eventually resolve every crisis and wipe away every tear. He never leaves us and he never loses. This is our God. He empathizes in our pain. He knows our pain. And he loves us and he never loses. This is where our hope is placed. And so if you identify with pain this morning, we also here at Grace Bible Church want you to know that we care for you and want to provide resources for you. So I would encourage you. This is our care pastor's email, Chris Thompson at grace-bible.org. He would love to meet with you and listen to you and provide resources for you. And so guys in the back, maybe if we can leave this slide up like five minutes after the uh, service, just so people have a time to take a picture or write down this email. But if you identify with pain right now, please feel free to contact Chris Thompson because he would love to meet with you and he would love to listen to you. Christians in the room, we can walk out in confidence that God is good despite our pain that he cares despite our pain, and that we can live a life that is different despite our pain. Pain is real. It's real. And we shouldn't negate that. But we have a God who provides a way and means of hope. Lastly, if you're in the room and you have not placed your trust in Jesus, my hope for you this morning is that perhaps today would be the day that you would reflect and come to know your Savior who loves you deeply. 
And so as we close, let's close and pray to this God who loves us. Pray to this God who has given us hope. Father, we thank you for being a God who loves us. A God who sympathizes, a God who empathizes. And so God, we want to walk away this morning as we sang this morning, saying that you are good. Saying that in confidence, even in our pain, even in our pain that is justified, that we can confidently say you never leave us and that you are good. God, I confess I struggle with that. I confess I struggle to say that in my pain. And so, Lord, would your scriptures, your scripture shows us, would I know that Jesus relates to me in my pain? And would I walk out of here knowing that you are good? that you are good, that you are good. God, for those in the room who are dealing with pain, I pray that they would uh, know that you are a God who loves, but also know that you are a God who has provided resources. And so, Lord, would we not be uh, prideful? Would we be humble? And would we, um, would we take the opportunity to seize these resources as we walk through pain, that we would not do it alone? We love you, Father. And it's in your name we pray, God. Amen. That's all we have this morning. You have a great week, and we will see you guys here next week.